G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. I've actually been looking for an opportunity to share some other heavy news with you and um, it was one of those things that it felt a bit too distant to kind of raise when we're talking about our community life but it felt kind of too close, never to raise. Anyway, this seemed to be um, a a time to talk about it. So uh, just about all of us know, and not just know, but love Hans Kelder, our former minister, uh, my former colleague. About a month ago, he got some heavy news from one of his sons, from Wes. Uh, You might know his twins, 37 years old, uh, Wes and Joel. Uh, Wes, he lives in Brisbane, he's married, has two kids, has an architecture business, You probably remember Wes. Um, Wes was diagnosed with lymphoma, with cancer. Now, the good news, if I can put it that way, is that he has an excellent prognosis. So they're saying things like 85% chance of beating this thing. 85% chance. That's pretty amazingly good for that diagnosis in the context. An outstandingly positive prospect. His, um, His fit... Uh, he loves going to the gym, he's otherwise healthy, he's a Christian man, he goes to a great church, I haven't been there but I gather it's an excellent church, he's active and involved there. Um, now here's why I thought it was a particularly fitting spot to talk about it, I wanted to tell you anyway, but in light of John chapter 12, um, see as some of you know intimately, a life travelled with cancer and with chemotherapy it seems to me, is a life lived within the entangling tentacles of death, within its clutches somehow, its awful claws. And so Wes's life, um, I was just talking to Hans about this on Tuesday, for months and months to come will fade in and out, plagued by death in one way or another. Now, yes, there's the spectre of it hanging over his own life and his own hopes and his own dreams and plans and what he had intended and now, who knows, um, it'll haunt his relationships and conversations, it'll be the topic that is difficult to talk about but friends want to talk about with him. But especially the chemo and that cycle that, as Hans was telling me about, for Wes, you see, it's already begun, this fortnightly cycle. He goes into the hospital, that's day one, and they pump his body full of this vicious poison, basically, in the hope that it'll kill more of the cancer than it will of Wes. Um, And he feels barely alive. He feels just like the walking dead for days to come, for the better part of that whole week. And then gradually, you see, he emerges into what feels more like life again for a few days, perhaps nearly a week. And then the end of that second week, well, it's back to the hospital, isn't it? For another round and another treatment as the, uh, the tentacles gather around him again in their grasp and the claws close in once again and his life is kind of reduced and beaten back. Now, here's why I mention it, partly because some of us remember Wes, I went to school with him, uh, we'll pray for him in just a second, but secondly, this life hemmed in by death, it's, it's very much the topic, the feel of today's passage vibrant, fit, healthy, go anywhere, do anything, in fact, life-giving life in terms of Jesus, threateningly and fearsomely pounded, hemmed in and reduced. Can we please pray together? 
Father in heaven, our loving God, our comforter this morning, we do pray for Wes. We pray for his wife and his children at the moment. We look to you for healing. We look to you for a complete recovery. We look to you for a mercifully successful outcome to his treatment. Would you please give wisdom to the medical professionals? Would you please give comfort and refuge? Would you please deepen Wes's faith and his wife's and his children and those around him? Thank you so much for his church as well as his family. We ask, would you please sustain him and them, further your glory in and through this crisis for them, we ask. But Father too, we pray for ourselves this morning. Would you please develop amongst us a joy at the life we have in Christ and a hope that abounds more and more in insight and in clarity and a patience and a trust to sustain us in the meantime. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, John chapter 11, verse 53, actually, a couple of verses beforehand is where I want to uh, pick things up. As I mentioned, we're skipping over the resurrection, the raising to life of Lazarus, um, since I preached on it back in December. Please go to the website and grab the sermon from there if you'd like to fill in the gaps. Suffice to say, let's get our heads back in John and we're trying to remember the Lazarus episode. Life had never seemed so real and so bright and so wonderful and so available than at this time in John's Gospel. Because Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the grave. Jesus, you see, he walks among these people not just as a healer, I healed a guy with blindness, not just as a teacher, wow, he blows away the teachers of our day. No, 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 finally, they got a glimpse of this raw power of God. He raised a man from the grave. So, dead for four days and wrapped for burial and laid in a tomb and then Lazarus come out and he came out, raised from the grave. Now, that was only kind of a few verses ago and I can't imagine, I can't begin to kind of ponder, what are these guys imagining for the future of Jesus' ministry at this point? Where could this go? Jesus can raise people from the grave. This is spectacular. Just think of the possibilities. This is uh, uh, like unbelievable, unspeakably, unthinkably, undreamably good. But then by stark contrast... Pick it up from verse 53 with me, would you please, of chapter 11. So from that day on, they, that is the Jewish leaders, plotted to take his life, Jesus' life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. Now, here's the crisis, in case you didn't spot it in the passage there, it's just sort of, it's just sort of telling the story, isn't it? No, no, there's a crisis here because the crisis is godly Jews attend the Passover. Observant Jews, uh, obedient Jews, upright godly Jews, they can't neglect, you can't ignore, you can't skirt Jerusalem for the Passover, you can't skulk around the edges forever, Jesus... You see, they had their man, one way or another. 
just a matter of time. Verse 56, they kept looking for Jesus and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. You see the bind? Jesus must either show up, in which case they've got him, or not show up, in which case he shows he's not really about the business of God at all. You can't shirk the Passover, you can't stay in the dark forever. Well, you can, Jesus, but that would be our bidding as well. Do you see the bind? They've got him. And so the story has sort of flipped, flopped, flipped from the, the, uh, the, the wonder of life from the grave, where could this possibly go? This is spectacular rejoicing to flop the darkness closing in, the tide rushing in around Jesus. But then flip again, come with me to Bethany. Because if they're scared, they're not showing it. If they're worried, if they're feeling harried, it doesn't, it, they could have fooled me. Chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, so just outside of Jerusalem, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Just a few little details here. Firstly, you get the sense that this is big and bright, don't you? We've come out of the darkness now, we're in Bethany, things are good again. There's a big gathering there. You get the sense that it's big, don't you? That it's not just some quiet little intimate gathering. Quiet, shh, keep it down. Don't let anyone know. No, it's like Lazarus is among those reclining at the table. Um, A village dinner, one commentator, a village dinner honouring a celebrated guest might well draw in several families to do the work. What's the equivalent? Something like a 50th birthday party, you know, when you sort of, you've got all the cars parked out the front, everyone knows you're having a party, even if they're not invited kind of thing. Things are great in Bethany. Second, Lazarus lives there. Did you spot that? He lives there. John is falling over himself, we'll see it again and again, to remind us that, hey, Jesus can give life. He can raise the dead. And Lazarus is proof of that. Do you see the brightness there? He is the, Jesus is the life-giving, death-defying. I am the resurrection and the life, chapter 11, verse 25. And thirdly there, you've got Mary, don't you? Mary. Now, this is intriguing because how much did, was that perfume worth? Judas tells us a couple of verses on. Do you remember in verse 5? Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages, (laughs) 300 denarii. I was trying to wrap my head around this, just doing a mental walk around my home. I can't put my hand to anything worth a year's wages. Can you? As you think about your own house or your own life, a car, no, um, nothing in my house comes close. A year's wages. Now, I don't say this to shame Mary by any means. In fact, the opposite, isn't it? I mean, oh, that we had the heart of devotion that Mary has here. In gratitude, he raised her brother to life. Oh, that we had that kind of devoted heart of Mary. Jesus, everything I have is yours. 
every cent, every possession. It doesn't seem like a loss to me to pour out this, I don't know, family heirloom or whatever it is on you, not on you, Jesus, not a waste. But here's the other little detail I want us to notice about Mary. Just notice what she does with the perfume there. What's the word? Read it with me, chapter 12, verse 3. Mary took out took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. She poured it, um, it says. I think, yeah, it does say it on ours as well. Would it help to know that that poured word there, I don't know why they've translated it poured. It's the normal word for anointed. You anoint a king to rule, anointing like priests you anoint to serve in the Old Testament temple, anointed to give a special servant of God a special task in the purposes of God. I'm not sure why they've gone with poured there. Anointed is the absolute normal translation. Now, why would Mary anoint Jesus? Because in her view, she has found the giver of life and she sees him having a task under God to go on and get on with. Do you see? Yes, it's in gratitude for raising her brother, but isn't this the time, Jesus, for you to go? This isn't for scared secrecy, huddle it down. No, this is for celebration. This is for big and bold. Jesus, have no fear. You go out there and you raise some more people from the graves. Lazarus was just the start, surely. Isn't this what you're going to carry on with? Oh, I'll anoint you for this task. May this be kind of the launch party, the beginning, where it all began here in Bethany. So, Jesus, go and visit every grave. Won't you visit every hospital? Won't you go to every funeral? Won't you go to every graveside, Jesus? This is the beginning of something. And you can see the trajectory. In fact, I reckon this is, this is the trajectory that we kind of wish he'd gone on sometimes, don't we? Mary represents our hearts in a big way. Jesus, you could have spared my grandma. Jesus, why didn't you give life? Why didn't you sustain the life of my sister-in-law? Wouldn't the world be a better place if she were still here? It would be in my view. Why didn't Jesus just go and raise people from the grave and why doesn't he still do it today? Now, Judas, don't get me wrong, he is wicked, greedy, sinister and scheming. He's a scheming man. But I think John mentions him next. Because in his own way, he reckons Mary is right. Judas reckons Mary is right. He can see the trajectory and he wants to line his own pockets in the process because he can see if, if Jesus runs out on Mary's mission of not just making poverty history but making death history, then he gets to line his pockets along the way. He can, he's on to something, Judas. He's, he's hit the, uh, the gold mine here. Could that be what's going on? Verse 4, one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. Uh, how does it put it in yours? I noticed it's slightly different. Yep. Oh, no, it was intended. Great. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. In other words, I'm not going on a mission, Judas. 
to the gravesides and to the hospitals. I'm going to my burial, Judas. You'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. You see how the tide of death, uh, at the beginning there, rushed in, rushed up to Jesus, its claws and its tentacles grasping after him. They've got him, this beautiful plan. They're going to catch him one way or another. They're going to ruin Jesus. And then it recedes back as we look at Bethany. The tide goes out again, the celebration. Go get him, Jesus, Mary is essentially saying. But Jesus is crystal clear. The tide is going to rush back in, Judas, and this time it's going to swamp me. I'm going to go under. She anointed me to go and trick death time after time. I've come not to trick it, but to go to my own. And so now the darkness closes back in. The authorities from verse 9 plan to scrub Bethany off the map in terms of life. Verse 9, meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Not only are we going to kill Jesus... We're going to kill all evidence of life from him. There'll be nothing left, no hope for this movement. That was their plan. And yet, on account of him, that is Lazarus, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Uh, Last time I saw Dave MacDonald, I don't know if any of you know him, he's an Australian um, pastor. Last time I saw Dave McDonald in the flesh was nearly six years ago. It was 2010. I just happened to be at a conference in Canberra. Um, he was this, uh, this bright, he's 50 years old, but he's still got this, this bright, laid-back kind of posture about him. You, you take one look at him and you think with his kind of, uh, well, at the time, locks of hair and his sun uh, you know, browned skin, you just think he grew up surfing, being a larrikin. He's such a likeable, lovable guy. Dave MacDonald. A year later, he describes his experience. Two devastating words spoken to me by different people in the same week of December 2011 left me feeling hopeless and lost. Tumour and incurable. These cruel words took my breath away and ushered in the darkest period of my life. They introduced me to all manner of fears and doubts, shattered my plans and dreams, devastated my family, and challenged my faith in God. These two words changed everything. Uh, You see, um, it turned out Dave had a tumour on his lungs and it had burst, and and, and the cancer had spread um, all around, uh, hence tumour, and incurable. Within days, he writes, the news went from bad to very bad to extremely bad. I deteriorated rapidly. The first operation wasn't successful and so they transferred me to a hospital that was better equipped. The doctors had to insert two new drains between my ribs into the pleural cavity. The pain-killing drugs gave me some frightening hallucinations. 
My constipation was so extreme that I had to vomit to remove food. I became so weak I could barely move myself around in bed. I lost 15 kilograms in three weeks. The emergency team was called twice as I plunged into unconsciousness. I experienced a 10 out of 10 for pain when the nurse pulled out the second chest tube. I began to think I was going to die in hospital. Brothers and sisters, why did Jesus go to his burial instead of sticking around? Instead of raising one after another, dead and dying, men and women, boys and girls, he had the power. Don't we know that from his episode in Bethany, raising Lazarus from the dead? He had the power. Come out, Lazarus. He could do it. He had the love, don't we also see that, as he cried with Martha and Mary on the way to the tomb? He had the power, he had the love. Why, brothers and sisters? Crass as it may seem to ask, where is Lazarus now? I've heard him described as the most unlucky guy in all of history. He's had to go twice. Where is Mary now? Where is Martha now? In 1 Peter chapter 1, we read these words. In his great mercy, he, that is God, our loving Heavenly Father, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, we wouldn't have it without the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. New birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. You who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Brothers and sisters, I just want to remind you that through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, through him going to his burial, I know John 11 and John 12 don't spell it out for us all yet, but through the resurrection of Jesus, we have an inheritance that can never perish and never spoil and never fade and it's kept in heaven for you. If Jesus had gone on his tour, raising one after the other after the other, he'd have to come back and raise us again and again. Our hope is brighter and our hope is better and our hope is permanent and it can never be taken away. If you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, well, it says it, doesn't it? Those, those verses don't take the tears away. Perhaps they focus our prayers a bit. Come, Lord Jesus. I think they should. But might they help us to rest in that, uh, in this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. Don't get me wrong, writes um, Dave MacDonald, who kind of miraculously, so yes, tumour incurable, almost miraculously was healed. He's currently NED, no evidence of disease. Amazing. Don't get me wrong, I am 100% pro-cure. 
I long for my cancer to completely disappear, he, he wrote, uh, before it had gone. I pray that it will, and I pray the same for others. Medical advances and new discoveries excite me. I love hearing that someone with cancer no longer has any evidence of disease. And I love the possibilities of a new start with a new outlook that come from this pronouncement. Yet, when the prognosis is bad, when all attempts at medical intervention have been exhausted, when prayers have not been answered, as we might wish, what then? Is there still hope? Is cure the ultimate hope for people with a terminal disease? Is cure the ultimate hope for people with a terminal disease? In light of the Gospel, I don't think it is, brothers and sisters. I think the resurrection life in the Lord Jesus, that's the ultimate hope. And it's ours in Christ because he went to his burial for us. Can we pray? Father in heaven, have mercy on us, your people. As the tentacles of mortality and death wrap around us and our loved ones, as the tide rushes in sometimes and rushes out at others, but rushes back in, we pray, would you please have mercy on us. Father, thank you for the imperishable hope that we have, the hope of an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. God, that is a good hope. Father, thank you that we share that with so many brothers and sisters down the ages who aren't with us anymore, but it was their hope and we look forward to being reunited with them. And Lord God, we pray today, come Lord Jesus, that he might return and bring life that is indeed life to the full. Yes, Father, we enjoy something of that now, even having that hope anchoring this life it changes so many things. It changes the way that we grieve, though we still do. But God in heaven, would you please sustain us now, but draw us forward to the time when what Jesus has done for us and is doing in us will finally be done with us in the new creation. And we pray it for his sake. Amen.